Hi, this is Gary Lipman, author of the new novel from Rare Bird called Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate. Book about a guy who's way too into Sharon Tate <laughs> and runs into people who are way too into Charlie Manson. Not a good mix. I'm here today with Laura Albert, author of the wonderful J.T. Leroy books, Sarah and the Heart is Deceitful Above All Things. Laura's an old friend of mine. And I'm really delighted to be speaking with her today for this podcast. Laura, how are you? I am good. We've just been uh, celebrating. I think we met first in France, and we bonded over our love of David Milch and Deadwood, the HBO series That's Deadwood. That's right. Ah, what a wonderful show that was and movie that was recently uh, broadcast. And I know you and Milch go way back. I want to ask quickly, how did you t and David Milch who not only, of course, for listeners, is the showrunner and the genius behind Deadwood, but goes way back. He did, after Deadwood, he did that wonderful only one season of it, though, show John from Cincinnati. Yeah. And also, uh, way back before that, Milch was the Wunder, and he also had the show Luck on HBO. But he was a wunderkind behind NYPD Blue, right? Right, That's and Hill Street got, Blues. Yeah, and Hill Street, Hill Street Blues. Hill Street Blues, exactly, but, exactly. But you and I bonded over the just the literate nature of what was shining through. I mean, it was Dickensian and Shakespearean, his language, and that became, for me, a uh, way to judge one right away if someone said to me, oh, the language, it's too much swearing, I knew right away they were an idiot. Oh, yeah. So when I met <laughs> yeah. you and you right away, you just were quoting from Milch, I knew that the way you expressed your love for his writing, I just got right away, okay, all right, you are of the same lineage. So. I am. And of course, I already had, when we met, I had uh, read your books. And so I was a fan of yours as well as Milch's. So it was double delight for me. And um, Milch, yeah, I mean, also, one thing that really galvanized my interest in Milch, apart from Deadwood and the other shows, was a wonderful New Yorker piece about Milch. I'll bet you remember it, Laura, about his process writing. Yes. Uh, back during the Deadwood days which blew my mind about his background. And, of course, there was a recent New Yorker piece about Milch uh, now, many years later. Um, but what's interesting about that piece is it's funny because I actually read it when I was on my way down to Los Angeles to meet him for the first time. It came out, it was, it was Valentine's Day. It must have been 2004, 2005, that issue. And... The thing that he talked about, about doing research, which I really have questions for you about, because your research is very interesting to me. He said, Thank you. When, he, when he was doing uh, research, the show takes place in the 1850s, I believe. And let me look up. Uh, no, 1870s. Later, later. 1870s, because yeah. I was there for season 1877 to 78. So, he went to Deadwood and... What he did is he just immersed himself in the world. He hung out with all the cowboys. He read uh, just all the documents. And what he said is you, you study, you learn everything, and then you forget it all, and you make yourself available. So right. That's beautiful. 
Yeah, I remember that from that article from The New Yorker way back in the early 2000s. And by the way, just as a goofy aside, you know where I read that article? You were en route to Meat Milch. Mm -hmm. I was on a 12-hour bus ride across Norway where my son was visiting his grandparents. I had the craziest scene. I used to go eight, nine-hour flight overnight to Norway, to Oslo <laughs> from New York. Then I had to run like a maniac through the airport I had like 20 minutes to get through uh, border control and get a bus that so would go 12 your, uh, hours. you did your Hertz commercial version. Exactly. But what was so crazy is it was eight hours of sitting and then 12 hours of sitting separated by 20 minutes of frantic running <laughs> with a suitcase. Okay. So on that long bus ride, I ended up reading that Milch article. And I completely get what he's saying about research with the Sharon Tate book, my novel. I did a lot of research, even right till the bitter end and would add stuff in that I discovered that I found useful. But I didn't let that control me. Uh, I ended up, um, as much as Milch puts it, I, I forgot it all in a way and let that kind of guide me subconsciously because as you know, Laura, so much of writing fiction is just sort of turning off the conscious mind and letting the subconscious penetrate through, you know, push through and guide you, at least during the first draft. Is that how you found, well, find well, writing first drafts? Well, let me ask you this. You, what I so, I found absolutely fascinating, to use a word that I actually don't like, because that's the first word adjective people use to describe me, and that's what right. Spock uses to describe a human emotion which he doesn't understand. <laughs> um, right, right. But what what I do find fascinating and dig is how you in the book so you're going back and forth in time, but you're also writing in Sharon Tate's voice. So to me that is like what Milch talks about, which is everything kind of giving yourself over. He talks about transmigration of spirit. And right. It, 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 oh, there's so many questions. Well, well, actually, it's a little more complicated than that for our listeners who haven't read the book. Uh, my protagonist is yes. not only crazy about Sharon Tate, he calls himself a Sharonophile, and his whole life is built around her, but he also fancies himself... I didn't know it was what? pronounced Sharon. Yeah. <laughs> I was well, Sharon. that's my... I mean, I made up the word, so... Okay, so I made the, the movie, need my Sharona. <laughs> so Sharonophile, uh, he, he's not only um, a Sharonophile, if that is a way to pronounce it, um, but he's also uh, fancies himself a scholar mm. of Sharon Tate. And he's all about bringing the good word about her essence to the world and make her better known. And one vehicle by which he wants to do this is write a book about her, right. which will include a lot of photos and stuff, and also what he calls a memoir from beyond the grave. So he, he writes in her voice about her life, and he believes this will make her more lovable to the general public. So it was an interesting writing task for me because I was writing a third person narrative or text about a guy who's writing a first person narrative in the voice of another person, in the voice of a dead person, in fact, Sharon Tate. So he's drawing on all the re research he did, which is to say I'm drawing on all the research I did to kind of write 
in her voice, rather right in his voice, pretending to use her voice. So it was kind of interesting to have those different levels of fictive reality to play with. So all of the research I, about her life specifically, I drew on, but I also put in little tweaks that he would put in. Right. Um, so it was, it, was a, it was a challenge. It, exactly. It's filtered through him. So it was a cool challenge to do. Someone, um, the great writer, uh, Jillian Lauren, interviewed me at Book Soup. Uh, recently when I did a reading of my novel there. And she raised an excellent point that my protagonist is very presumptuous to purport to speak in Sharon Tate's voice, you know, kind of like sabotage or not sabotaging, but stealing her voice in essence and deeming himself through this entitled feeling worthy of speaking in her voice, telling her story. He is a guy who never knew her. And that's an excellent point. And that's something I intended because I have a, without ruining the story of my novel, um, I have a pretty critical view of my protagonist and kind of serve him his comeuppance in the course of the story. Well, well, let's go back for a minute. Well, I have a question. When, I have a few questions. And I have more hit than me, a few questions. Uh, with my best shot, I shout, darling. Uh, yes. So, um, first of all, I, like, when I write, um, sometimes it's when you're doing dialogue, like between two characters, we often find out things that we didn't know. When Sharon was uh, talking through your character, when you mm-hmm. were in communication with her, did you find out something that you didn't expect, or did she tell you something? I did, but it was not, let's be clear, Sharon Tate herself. It was my conception of her. So that's a given. So Right, right. So I don't, you know, I recently met... We're not talking seance here. I understand that, and we're just, we're, but... but Right, yeah, well, I I didn't, I didn't, um, you know, I recently met this fellow, Ben... um, Ben Moser, who wrote the recent, uh, recently published biography of Susan Sontag. And I got talking to him about biography, and I mentioned that I'd written this book that has a lot of biographical stuff about Sharon Tate, and asked him if he felt writing this really long, detailed, erudite biography of Susan Sontag, whether he felt, in the course of writing it, though he never met her personally, whether he felt like he, in a sense, knew her by the time he finished. And he said, absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm not sure that I could say that there's still, uh, I can't say myself that I feel like I knew Sharon Tate. Um, by all accounts, by the way, she was a really wonderful person. And so I wish I had met her, but I can't say that like this fellow Moser, uh, I really knew her. But I filled in the blanks in the course of writing, you know, maybe hiding behind the fact that my protagonist was seizing her voice and giving his own impression of her. I sort of let that fill in the blanks of what I didn't know about her, having never met her and not having done so much research that it would have filled, you know, a thousand page book. Well, let me ask you this, let me, because this interrelates, like... Luntmoreland, who is the name of the man who has this 
uh, Sharon Quest or right. um, Desire Sharon Obsession. Obsession, yeah. Obsession, yeah. yeah. Um, you similarly saw a film, but correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, when you were young right. and it made an impression. Right. I saw her in the movie The Wrecking Crew when I was a little kid. I was probably about 11. And kind of as an 11-year-old boy or girl will, I had a crush. And that crush was, was uh, really... I think I, I, I can't exactly date it. I think it was... Ele- it must have been... I must have been about 11, 11 and a half. Maybe 12. On TV? And I saw a rerun on TV. Right. This, so this would have been in 1974, maybe 75, but I think 74. Um, therefore, Sharon Tate, who was murdered uh, in 69, had only been gone for five years. Um, I knew about the Manson killings. I knew who she was. And so when the credits rolled at the end of the film and I saw her name and realized that she was the person, the woman, the actress that I'd developed a, a crush on in the course of watching the TV rerun, I was horrified. I thought, oh, my God, you know, and as I've said, uh, it was almost like Eros was suddenly uh, assaulted by Thanatos, you know. Suddenly this loving uh, crush was attacked by, you know, the knowledge that this poor woman was no longer among us and, in fact, had been murdered horribly some years before. Well, I think that, it, it's a, it's an intense age to understand wrap your head around death right. seeing somebody who exactly is so alive uh and and to understand that violent end and to have an right. emotional connection yeah i did it didn't persist though i should add I, um because i guess because i was a kid and it was too complicated and powerful uh and dark i did not become obsessed with her, even pay much attention to her after that. I felt it was a strange memory, but I went on and went on to have crushes on other movie actresses and then the, my, you know, girls at school. And I went on to not be fixated on Sharon Tate, but many years later, maybe 20 years later when I was an adult, uh, I thought as fiction writers often do, what if? And mm. I got thinking about that memory, having seen a woman and a, a bartender in a bar who looked like Sharon Tate, that caused me to remember seeing Sharon Tate in the film on TV as a kid. And I thought, you know, what if I'd become fixated back then? <clears throat> what if I'd become obsessed with her? And because I've always been fascinated, as I know you are, with eccentric people, you know, both in our lives and in our writing. So I thought, you know, what, what if someone was just totally crazy? The way, you know, sometimes people are obsessed or think they're Napoleon or Jesus. You know, they become fixed on this idea that they're, I am Jesus, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought, what if someone doesn't think they're Sharon Tate, but is so in love with her that it kind of uh, becomes the overriding... Um, they're organizing principle. It's an organized, exactly. And once I had that idea, I then very quickly thought, well, what if he runs into people who are totally obsessed with Manson? And right there, I knew I had a a story. And uh, as I say, I think writers so often do that. They just get an idea and then say, what if? Right. When you're making the story up, do you do that? I'm sure you do that, Laura. Well, 
uh, yeah. I mean, is that how you first developed Sarah, for example? Were you saying, no. what if? No. no? Okay. <laughs> no, it just kind of, it, it was just like watching a movie. But, ah, uh, okay. But, but I very much see with your book, it's like, it's almost like the white hats and the black hats, but then it blurs in terms of what, which, right. is he a good guy or a bad guy? There's this line on page uh, 118 where his, um, uh, his parents are, are concerned because they understand the mother, especially that he has this obsession. And he, he, the whole thing just seems like, um, not the whole thing, but it's sort of like, listen to your mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. His parents, yeah, keep sending him to different therapists who all kind of fail to get, break my protagonist of his Sharon Tate obsession. But as a parent myself, and I know you're a parent of a wonderful young man, you know, we, we uh, are concerned for our kids, of course, and I'm sympathetic to the parents of my protagonist because he's really, you know, uh, setting himself up for an unfulfilling life by being obsessed with someone who will never know, you know, who's dead and um, not a fruitful way to live your life. Uh, but, but at the same time, and let me just say, I really was in the mindset of my protagonist. So I saw the mother who's really trying to break him of his Sharon obsession as an impediment. You know, I kind of, <laughs> I really saw her as, you know, frustrating, uh, by not appreciating his love. He can't understand why she would, she wouldn't get that his love was so pure and selfless and, or so he thinks. Well, can you read a little on page 117? Do you, do you have the text in front of you? I'll get it. I ha yep. One's, oh, let me grab one. 117. Therefore. So, okay, I'm almost there. The bottom of page 117 of the sacred text from the book by Rare Bird. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Now Set I have to find controls. my reading. Set the controls for the for heart, the of, heart Sharon of Sharon Tate. Tate. Oh, no. Yep, okay. my novel. And uh, I'm putting on my reading glasses for any listeners who aren't quite as advanced in age as I am. Reading glasses may be in your future as they turned out to be in mine. So 117, uh, that's where this very kooky, the, all the therapists are more or less kooky that... Um, and, that, uh, and later I want my, to talk to you about the namings. and. Uh, oh, yeah, I had fun with the names in this book. So this therapist, he's, his name is Fractawil, and he's drawing on uh, ancient Kabbalistic wisdom in order to break my protagonist of his Sharon Tate obsession. So this guy recommends these, this crazy ritual where my protagonist is advised by the therapist to go to the cemetery where Sharon Tate is buried and do a strange Kabbalistic ritual there. And my protagonist sees this guy as bonkers. <laughs> so you wanted me to read? Yeah, from therefore. Okay, um, toward the bottom of the page 117. Hmm. Therefore, the therapist went on reading, you must say to the spirits of the dead, in the name of God, I do not wish to join you or any other dead. The therapist closed the book, his finger once more strategically inserted in it. Simple as that. 
You're not a therapist, Lunt said. You're more like a faith healer. To which Fractawil said, actually said, pshaw. Then he continued, I'm just a psychotherapist who believes in the power of rituals. If something works, why disdain it because it's outside the box? I take wisdom wherever I find it, even from our friends, the Jews. Not rabbis only, but gangsters too, <laughs> like the Jewish gangster Dutch Schultz, for instance. No one remembers Dutch Schultz anymore, which is too bad. He, had, he too had wisdom to offer us. <laughs> Do you know what Schultz said when he lay dying? His famous last words. He said, Mother is the best bet, and don't let Satan draw you too fast. Words to ponder, hmm? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that sums it up. And, um, <laughs> yes, it does. And I, I actually uh, make use of both Mother and Satan as figures in the book. I keep, uh, not often, but sometimes return to uh, concept of mothers, not just uh, my protagonist's mother, but uh, Sharon Tate's mother and other mothers. And Satan as a concept, you know, about which evil or around which evil uh, draws itself uh, is a concept, too, that I play with in the book. So Dutch Schultz is there with that quote for a reason. And that's actually true. I came across that fact. Dutch Schultz was dying and babbled on his deathbed. And someone recorded uh, what he said. And it was really poetical babbling. Uh, including that line there that I just read. So, uh, like you, I draw on everything I encounter to put it in uh, what I write. Yeah, and you never know when it's going to come up. And and do you think he, Moreland, kind of comes to that uh, realization eventually? Yeah. Or is it... Well, I, I don't want to, again, I don't want to ruin the end of the book for any listeners who are going to read it and haven't read the ending yet, but I will say that the whole book is kind of a machine by which I am trying to break my protagonist of his obsession and uh, take him through all sorts of trials by which uh, he's able to finally change. A lot of great yeah. books where people don't change, right? And I remember yes. Seinfeld, supposedly, the motto the writers had was, no lessons, huh. right? But I couldn't, and of course, on the opposite side, the writer, the novelist, John Gardner, was all about moral fiction, and he prescribed that the protagonists of a book always change and come to the light and discover something, have an epiphany. Um, I don't believe there should be any real prescription. Every book is different. But for me, my initial concept of my novel was that, that the protagonists change and grow, and so, uh, if only slightly. And so uh, that, that was sort of a priority for me in writing it. But the other wonderful, or the, to me, or what's so wonderful about this book is it's so funny. I mean... To me, like there are so many books or even TV shows that we watch where we know how it's going to end, but the journey is just wonderful. It's hilarious, and there's so much comedy in this book that. Thank you, thank you, my dear. Did As you ever with just yours. crack yourself up? 
Yeah, I did actually. Uh, there, <laughs> I did, and you yeah, know, yeah, I can feel that. It's great. Some, I, I really did. Sometimes I would even laugh out loud. I'm not sure any reader would at what I laughed at, but uh, recently, a friend of mine who read it asked me why one of the one of the characters calls another character, uh, and he's on drugs at the time, but still, he keeps calling this character. Uh, uh, getting his name wrong and instead calling him Mr. Stuyvesant Fish. <laughs> I don't know why I put that in there. It just seemed like a goofy thing that that character would do. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, you know, there's very silly stuff in there that by which I amuse myself. And I think that gets to a deeper thing. You ask about, did I crack up? Um, I think that for better or worse, we write the kind of book that we'd like to read. Mm-hmm. you know and put it out in the world and uh without making claims for quality of my book i do think it's the kind of book that if i'd found it you know whatever flaws i discovered inside it i would still think this is the kind of book that i would dig you know that i dig reading and uh and i will add that i wrote it sort of in the spirit of a film that i saw many years ago and really loved and the ethos of that film and the vibe of that film sort of informed this book and that film is the tenant directed by roman polanski oh wow so there's that connection to sharon tate because polanski of course was her husband when she was murdered so he's her widower of course polanski is a controversial figure for a bunch of other big reasons but his film called The Tenant, which was made in the mid-70s, uh, it was his last film he made before his big criminal behavior uh, with the underage, the statutory rape, actually, of the, of the girl uh, for which he was arrested and ultimately fled justice to France. Um, but that film he made in Paris called The Tenant, which is based on a novel by a wonderful French writer named Roland Topor, T-O-P-O-R, worth seeking out, really cool book. And the film is great. And uh, the film has a weird mix of very dark comedy and very serious, spooky uh, story. And I saw it in Montreal one night alone and felt absolutely haunted when I left. So that mix of absurdist humor and real darkness um, stayed in my mind. And when I ultimately hatched the idea to write my book, even though my book uh, isn't about any, isn't set in Paris and isn't really about anything that the tenant is about other than emotional and psychological collapse. um, The spirit of that film and the kind of humor and the kind of spookiness is something I was trying to evoke with my book. Yeah, and I, I I feel when I'm when I'm reading it, it's so visual. Everything from your descriptions of the cafes and the hotels, everything is just. It does feel exactly. Uh, it's similar to how I feel when I write that we film it. It's so very visual, and thank you. And, yeah. and it is like a Rubik's cube. Well, not really, but there are references so many that go back and forth, and you can just get lost researching. And that's the kind of there are clues and there are little uh, hints and all these little kind of um, uh, Easter eggs that someone could follow endlessly. And I love that kind of writing. It's very exciting. Thank you. Because I do too, and and I put the, a lot of them in. 
on purpose because that's the kind of writing I like. And, oh, it's great. <clears throat> and, and the thing is, I never feel like it, it's not uh, highfalutin. You know, it doesn't leave me out if I don't know something. It's It makes it, it's very accessible. But let me ask you about the name. So I understand you have a book of names and that you are very uh influenced by thomas pynchon is that how you say his name yes i i exactly i uh, i've said this before when interviewed that um i love thomas pynchon and uh i i love among many things about his novels i love his names which really come um in a fine literary tradition and you've got great names of your characters too of course um Names are really important, and you mentioned before how Milch's Deadwood is Dickensian. Dickens had wonderful names. Mm. I remember there was a, mm. I think he's a school teacher called Gradgrind. Grad, <laughs> that it was, Grad, yeah, Grad Mr. Grind? Gradgrind, Mr. <laughs> Gradgrind, which I thought was a great teacher's name. It's mm. not, you know, it's not like bad teacher or, you know, mm. study hard, you know, Mr. Study Hard. It's not nearly as obvious as that, which is terribly obvious, but grad grind really captures a hard-ass teacher mm. in a way so with names Pinchon's great at this and it's true i have a book called Pinchon character names where the names of every character in his many novels are not only listed alphabetically wow. but there's a kind of etymology uh to where the name comes from and so uh but i don't i, where is I myself that? Wait, wait. where is that book where can people find it I have it right here. Let me see. It's, uh, I'm going to have to put on my reading glasses again. I might, with you, erudite as you are, Laura, I might as well keep them on through the rest of our talk. So, so this book is called, yeah, they're staying on. It's called Pinch on Character Names, a Dictionary. And the author or the compiler is one Patrick Hurley, H-U-R-L-E-Y. I'm just going to open to, uh, open to page 90 where uh, there's a character from the Pinchon novel Mason and Dixon. This is the first name my eyes fell upon. It's Le Chisel. And the explanation is this mad French frigate captain's name is probably a play on the English verb chisel, meaning to cheat or defraud. And then source, Oxford English Dictionary. So this book is 181 pages of just names and the derivations, or rather the origins of each name that Pinchon came up with. So it's a really cool, even if you don't dig Pinchon, I imagine for people who dig names and strange words and clever wordplay, it's a cool source. But so, I wonder if you're like me. When I think up a name, I'm not as obvious. I just kind of like try on different names. They come to mind. And once, uh, once I hit on one, it becomes very associated with the character. Are you like that too with uh, character names? Yeah. I mean, it, it's like uh, for Sarah, I thought Cherry, Cherry Vanilla would just be a placeholder and I would get something else, but nothing else came. But... Yeah, and then sometimes you hit on a, a name and it just really, they let, to me, it's like they let you know what the name is. But I, yeah. it's funny when I was reading um, the character's name, 
Lunt, I kept thinking of Alan Funt, which who was the host <laughs> of Candid oh, Camera. And how I and, loved that show. Yeah. <laughs> Candid and, Camera, the prankster's delight. It was one of the first um, kind of, a, 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 what's that, MTV show? Um, punked. Uh, yeah, punked, or, or yeah. like what, what predated all the YouTube um, kind videos, of Videos, prankster videos. Yeah. For listeners, Candid Camera was started, I think, in the late 50s, early 60s with this host, Alan Funt, and they would have secret cameras and set up pranks or, or mischief and then film the reactions to people's, uh, you know, when people encountered it. For example, a car rolls into a gas station and the guy in the car, who's an actor, gets out and they're filming from a secret spot and he gets out and says to the service station employee who's not in on it, says, my car just stopped. So the service station employee goes over and opens the hood of the car and there's nothing inside. No engine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just empty space. And, and the service station guy goes, mister, you got no engine here. And the guy goes, what are you talking about? I was just driving and it suddenly went dead. And, you know, to me, I find that very funny. The look on the service station guy's face of confoundment, you know confusement and puzzlement it's, it's, it's the going into the surreal and i think that's also your book goes back and forth in in a way because you're you're in contact in communication with this kind of lie agreed upon everyone is kind of organizing around this dead person trying to make her um their own and right uh, like I, I love the auction scene between uh, where he wants a toe ring that might have a hair, and he yeah. loses it to his arch enemy, who also steals the, the his girlfriend. The, uh, the girlfriend yeah. who he is with because she has the eyes of Sharon Tate. Right. Yeah. The, my character is so deluded that he can really only get sexually attracted to someone if they resemble Sharon Tate in some way, either you know, in general, or more, more likely he meets people who, you know, for example, this woman has Sharon Tate's eyes. He says her eyes look like Sharon Tate's eyes. So bingo, that's a full on attraction. And with his rival Sharon Tate lovers, you know, he becomes competitive. So everybody in the book more, well, not everybody, but many of the main characters sort of have vested interests in loving Sharon Tate or in some way caring about Sharon Tate or Charles Manson and getting in on that and, you know, competing with each other, attacking each other. So uh, I wanted to say a lot about how we take pop culture figures and uh, reify them and commodify them and deify them. Uh, so I was playing a lot with that, not in a really conscious way, uh, but just kind of setting the characters up and having them go through their motions in my imagination. Well, I want to ask you, you told me a wonderful story about <laughs> inadvertently being a part of a convention. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I was, and I put this in my book uh, just in a paragraph. Um, when my uncle and I, were visiting Philadelphia for a family gathering about 20 years ago. We checked into this hotel, downtown Philadelphia, 
I live in New York, so we went down there together, my uncle and I, and we were uh, at the front desk checking in, giving our credit cards, you know, getting our room keys. And the clerk, the hotel clerk said, are you guys here for the convention? <laughs> and we said, no, we're, we don't know about that. No, no, we're just here to see family. Okay, fine. We get in the elevator, going up to our rooms with our suitcases. And uh, the, in, when we got in the elevator, there was a man in the corner of the elevator who looked at us, uh, nodded, holding a Barbie doll, which was in its full packaging, you know, just holding it. So I thought, okay, guy's giving it to his kid, you know, as a gift. And the elevator went up two floors, three floors, stopped, doors open. We're not getting out yet. But into the elevator walk two other people, both holding Barbie dolls. <laughs> so my uncle and I looked at each other. You know, again, the Barbie dolls in packaging. So my uncle and I looked at each other and kind of nodded. And then when I got to my room and opened the door, there was all this literature, Xerox pages of events, you know, schedules and events and Barbie doll pictures. And I realized that we'd inadvertently checked into the <laughs> Barbie doll convention, collector's convention, you know, no kids. Everybody that weekend that I saw, and I saw many people holding Barbie dolls and talking about Barbie dolls and arguing about Barbie dolls. None of them were children. It was all adults. And all, the dolls were always in the packaging, I might add. Nobody ever took their doll out of the packaging. Tell about the so, hat. Well, yeah. So I believe it was the first morning I was down having coffee and just sitting back and amusing myself, watching all these people go by with Barbie dolls, you know. And because uh, we really were among the only people in that hotel probably who were not there for this Barbie doll collector <laughs> convention. So my uncle and I were... Um, no, no, it was me alone, actually. Uh, I was alone having coffee in the lobby. And uh, a woman walked by wearing a fez. <laughs> not just any fez. You know, you don't often see fezes. If, or fez eye. I'm not sure what the plural of that is. <laughs> but um, she was wearing a fez that n not only was the fez itself odd, but it was pink, hot pink colored. And glued all around the fez, you know, fez is a circular hat, tapers toward the top from, I guess, from Morocco originally. Um, anyway, with a tassel hanging down. But this hot pink colored fez had Barbie dolls glued all around it in a kind of circle of life. <laughs> mm -hmm. And when I saw that, loving kitsch as I do, and I saw that, I thought, I got to have that, man, either for Halloween or just to have on my mantle. I got to have that. Where can I get one? I wasn't going to steal hers, of course, but maybe wherever she got hers from, I could get me one myself. So I said, uh, excuse me, ma'am, where did you get that? And I loved her reaction. Uh, she looked at me and just sort of really in an imperious and condescending voice and with a condescending look said to me, her exact words I remember were, it was a door prize. It's not for sale. <laughs> <laughs> really shutting me down. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So even though I say that my book, and here's getting to something about writing fiction, even though you know I'm not a Sharon Tate obsessive and I've never met one, uh, never had met one when I wrote the book, um, I just made all that stuff up. Other than the 
inciting incident when I was a kid and saw her on TV, um, which I do dramatize in my novel. But uh, I'm not a Sharon Tate uh, lover myself beyond, you know, beyond uh, just admiring her. However, and, and so the book is not autobiographical, but I did put in a lot of stories or ideas or things that, um, that had happened to me, you know, minor little details, like, for example, that Barbie doll incident. You've so I put that a, in there. You've had such a rich and continue to have such a very uh, rich uh, experiential life all over the... I Thank mean, you, as do so you, as people. do you. Well, yeah, I, in fact, we first met in Paris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but, we're both but, Americans. Uh, purportedly. I say <laughs> yeah, right well. Proudly. But, but um, what I wanted to, I mean, it's amazing how you were working on this for so long. And, and one of the themes of the book is uh, kind of working on a book and not finishing it. And it's it's amazing that not only did you complete this book but also at a very uh like an epic time period a fortuitous time period or an, or a not fortuitous i i don't know what the word is um right because of the Tar- sharon tate being a character in the new and very popular quentin tarantino movie once upon a time in hollywood well and so, also yeah. the anniversary right of <clears throat> exactly it's it was just in august uh on august 9th the 50th anniversary of sharon tate's murder so uh tarantino it's coincidental that your book just happened to be out well yeah i mean i first began the book uh, a draft of the book in the early 90s that's when wow. i first had that idea of writing it and wrote a draft, but then, as often is the case, I really, I'm, I'm not entirely self-confident in myself as a writer. I know a lot of writers and artists and musicians suffer from this as well, the, the terrible demon self-doubt, mm-hmm. where you write something, and though you may be really into it and finish it and think, wow, that's cool, I did good there, but then you think, wait a minute, is it really that good? Is anybody hmm. going to dig this? You know, even in the middle or toward the beginning, right. that self-doubt can snuff you out, snuff out your inspiration, snuff hmm. out the self-belief that you have that you need to finish the book. Kim Gordon, uh, formerly of Sonic Youth, the bass player for the band Sonic Youth, I read a quote from her where she said about rock stars or rock yeah. musicians. Oh, I love this, She yeah. said, yeah, I think I've told it to you. Uh, she said... People pay to watch us get up on stage and believe in ourselves. Right. Yeah. And I've always found that really, you know, one of the cool things is when you see a book in a bookstore and you buy it and start reading it Mm -hmm. and think, wow, they're getting away with this. You know, they're they're doing it. You know, they're being funny in that certain way or they're writing about that certain subject. That, That can be very validating. And you think, I can do that too. But the flip side of that is when you doubt yourself, when you have this voice inside that attacks you and says, this sucks. What you're writing is no good. What's more, not only is your subject no good, but you're not able to bring it off because you're not a good writer. And that will kill dead so many things in whatever art form for artists, even who published many books. I know um, just the other night I saw Nick Cave, Mm-hmm. perform in New York. He 
he played at uh, Town Hall, and he did what I guess he's billing as a show called Conversations with Nick Cave, where people would ask him questions, and he'd answer, and then occasionally he'd play music on the piano. And there were an incredible amount of questions people asked, or a variety of questions, very silly questions, very, very deep questions, and a lot of questions about his process as an artist. And one thing he spoke about as uh, key to his artistic process is what he called defiance. He said that whenever he hears that voice say, you're no good, this sucks, why are you even bothering? To talk back to that and say, shut up, I'm doing it, no matter what you say, I'm pushing on, I'm an artist, I'm entitled to my voice, I'm entitled to speak, I'm entitled to not only do this, but finish this and bring it to market. And he called that talking back to your self-doubt a form of artistic defiance. And I hadn't ever thought of it that way, but to answer your question, Laura, um, a lot of my finishing the book finally, because I did that first draft in the early 90s and put it away for five, mm. ten years and went back to it, looked at it, worked on it some more and then said, this sucks, put it away again. Mm. And I only in recent years was able to finish it. And I think there was an element of defiance in finishing it and saying, I don't care. I like this story. Nobody else may like it, but I'm going to finish it. And and you know go for it and see if i could find a publisher for it and uh instrumental in doing that were two things one i'm lucky enough to have an incredible wife who's also your friend laura my wife vera mm -hmm. who read the draft i had of it and said you should finish this you should believe in yourself i'll read it i'll give you my feedback her honest feedback and uh, which wasn't always positive but it was always honest and that allowed me to improve the book and allowed me to finish the book. So I have a great debt of gratitude to Vera. And anybody out there, pray to self-doubt. Having friends, loved ones read your work or see your paintings or listen to your music or watch your acting and having somebody be honest but who cares about you so they're not so honest that they break you but they lovingly give you honest feedback those people are really key and can really work a wonder in allowing you to finish a work and be happy with it, or at least be happy enough with it that you send it out into the world. And the final thing, the other thing, along with having my wife really support me and urging me to finish it, uh, was just this kind of feeling, not only of defiance, but a sort of feeling of, you know what, I'm going to do it, win, lose, or draw and not right. care so much that it be published, but just, I'm going to finish it, and if I dig it, so be it. If anybody else likes it, that's gravy, right? You know, so having that attitude of pleasing yourself, and if other people are also pleased, all the better, but if you're just worried about what other people think, and you don't have a centering in yourself, um, it's hard to finish and, and be content with what work you've done. Well, I, I think so much of what I do when I travel and I speak is people come up and they want permission uh, to be able to tell. And I think sometimes just going to someone 
And you have to be careful about who you share your work with because we are, we can be so very uh, delicate, sensitive. Yeah, Yeah, it's a very vulnerable place. It's like, you know, when a dog rolls over and gives you their tummy to scratch, they're just vulnerable there. And it's like that. Uh, Exactly. You have to be careful because there are people who, for whatever reason, they, they will... They can just snuff, try to snuff the baby in the uh, in the crib, and it's yep. and at a certain point we need to give ourselves permission. I, I love there's a story about Neil Simon who was working on I think it was Brighton Beach memoirs, and he had it in a drawer for like maybe seventeen years, some incredibly long time, and he just it, but it kept it. I like to think that it sometimes there are some pieces we're still working on it's just maybe there's work we need to do like we're still kind of growing and making ourselves ready for that baby you know it's there's something else that there's work we need to do and then one day he opened the drawer and he was just now i know and he was just able to sit and finish it right away that's beautiful a beautiful thought and you express it beautifully I think that's true. I mean, it may be the case with this book of mine. I've written other things that are still in the drawer that I'm planning to revisit. Um, do you think and you know what it reminds me of? Do you think that completing this has made it more easy for you now to go back and access those? I think so. I think so. They're all very different, you know, very different pieces. Um, yeah, I think so. I've actually finished some pieces that I want to look at. You know, I've got them as good as I could get them as of a year or two ago or whenever I last worked on them that I'd love to go back and see just how finished they are if I'm right about that and then maybe, you know, send them out to publishers. Uh, and um, But you know what your story reminds me of, Laura? I met in uh, Marin County. I went to a wedding about 20 years ago and uh, at this wedding, I met this elderly couple, and uh, I said, they seem really great with each other. They really dug each other. I said, have you guys, how long have you been married for? I thought they'd say like 50 years, something like that. And they said, two years. And I said, oh, okay. And they told me that they had met when they were teenagers, and they had dated, and then broke up, and they married other people. But they kept in Mm. touch as friends, and they occasionally got together and had an affair, Hmm. you know, and then they divorced their spouses, and they'd hook up, and then they met other people and got got married to a second Mm. round of people and hooked up still, you know, or didn't, but then they got divorced a second time and hung out and then got married. I think they got married a third time, each of them, and had other, you know, lives, had kids, both of them had kids. But they'd always kept in touch, whether it was as lovers or friends. And finally, in their 60s or 70s, they were one, one was divorced and one, I think, was widowed. And uh, they just said, why don't we get married? We've known each other our whole lives. We've, we're compatible. And they, they said to me, we've never been happier. We're only kicking ourselves why we didn't get married right away. Adam. Well, it's, it's you know. like that... Uh uh, or I think it's Orson Welles, we will serve no wine before it's time. Um, <laughs> I love that. Of all the great Orson Welles quotes, you right. use that one, which we remember from our childhood, seeing him on 
what was it? Orsini Rossi, the a wine right, commercial right, right, he was right, in? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So or, or Orson Welles. Gala line? Gala wine. Yeah, I think it was yeah. Gala. Orson yeah. Welles, who was shilling for a lot of companies toward the end of his life. But so he earned the right. I mean, it's it's like almost like you're Bichart, Bichart. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and art can be like that. It's like you're, you're given over to this. And I, I just wanted you, at your event in Book Soup, you had a very interesting coincidence of having somebody there. Because in your book, there's a girl, um, a young lady that he's dating, Jop. Who yeah. is his? Her, her grandmother was one of Manson's first wives. It, much like the way, um, uh, 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 what's his name? Who dated uh, Elvis's um, uh, daughter? You know who I mean? Uh, Nicholas Cage. Yeah, 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 Nicholas yeah. Cage. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So you're kind of tag that, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this kind of like genetic uh, connecting with in, in sort <laughs> yeah. of. Uh, dipping into in conversation with through the genetic pool and you you had an experience where someone actually came to your reading who was of this milieu <laughs> well yes the, uh, fortunately there were no that i knew of manson affiliated people at my reading though i did have a friend who was a musician is a musician and in the late 60s, his house was burglarized by the Manson family, oh which he told me many years ago. So he was at the reading. But there were two other people who um, uh, were um, fascinating to get to meet. One was uh, the ex-wife of one of uh, Sharon Tate's fellow victims, someone who was murdered by her side. Uh, his ex-wife was there. So... Um, so uh, she in turn was a lovely person with whom I had a great conversation. Someone else was there, another lovely person who's uh, friendly with members of Sharon Tate's family and who has uh, collected some Sharon Tate memorabilia. So um, I don't think she's in any way uh, obsessive about Sharon Tate, but she's a collector of movie star memorabilia, or she just was via her connection to the Tate family, um, buying something um, to be supportive of that charity because it was a sale of Sharon Tate's memorabilia for charity. But it was definitely weird to meet someone where I actually in my book say that my protagonist collects Sharon Tate's clothing and to meet someone uh, publicly, you know, while I'm giving my reading and my talk, who herself was a collector of some Sharon Tate memorabilia. That was, uh, that was powerful. And at my, I did a reading in New York at Strand Books recently, and a few friends of mine there knew Sharon Tate. Oh, wow. Um, and I've met over the years a few people who knew Manson. I've met... Uh, but, and so with the uh, people there who knew her, and here you are, your, your, your character is writing in... Her voice, what did they share with you, or what, what was their response? Well, as far as I know, the friend in particular I'm thinking of who knew Sharon Tate hasn't read my book yet, though we spoke about my book. Uh, this was just a few days ago. Mm -hmm. um, but um, he shared some ideas with, uh, or thoughts with me about her, and also um, 
a uh, uh, very interestingly, there's a very fine writer named J- who's gone now, James Salter, mm-hmm. who uh, or Jim Salter, as people who knew him would say, Jim is what people call him. I met him years ago. He had written. Uh, he's written mainly fiction, but he wrote a memoir. James Salter's memoir is called Burning the Days. And it's a fascinating memoir because Salter was a fighter pilot in the Korean War and wrote some wonderful books about being a fighter pilot, both fiction and nonfiction. Some really amusing and powerful stories about that job and, uh, and uh, calling of being a fighter pilot in combat. Um, he had just missed, by the way, World War II. He was just too young, so he became a fighter pilot during the Korean War. You have so many stories for you to see. It's like you and me, <laughs> and we go off on Paisley. It's, it's like- one, one reason why we're friends. But let me just conclude. Salter <laughs> knew Sharon Tate. And in his book, he writes about having written a script for Polanski and spending time with Polanski wow. and Sharon Tate. And so um, uh, I asked him, I said, I'm writing a book about a guy obsessed with Sharon Tate. What was she like? Now, I was a stranger just saying hello to this guy, though we knew a few people in common. And I spoke to him at a a public reading, a public event for the Paris Review, that great literary journal. That you write for? Written a piece about you and that I write for sometimes. Uh, And Salter, when I asked him about Sharon Tate, it was really interesting. He looked at me and said, well, what are you writing about her? He was protective of her memory. And I assured him what I want to assure everybody with my book, which is that I'm nothing but respectful of Sharon Tate's memory and her humanity and her work. I really, as I said earlier in the course of reading about her life, I came to really admire her and feel very caring about her. She was, by all accounts, a really extraordinarily sweet and uh, loving person, uh, making the tragedy of her murder all the more tragic and horrifying. So um, I assured James Salter when I met him that I meant well. And then he looked at me and he said, okay, well, she was everything you think she was. Hmm. And that's all I'm going to say, which I thought was pretty beautiful and interesting that that's what he said so he didn't elaborate the way some other friends had uh who knew her to me about what a great person she was but that one that that uh remark by salter uh stays in my mind very prominently let me say this one thing that they often talk about a helter skelter you know the manson murders were kind of an age an end of the age of innocence and i i to me the obsession of Sharon, it, it, it's almost like kind of capturing, and I think it's very apropos for our day and age, uh, for what we're experiencing right now, where it's um, after, if you look at the period before our present president, that we can look back and say, oh, how, this age of innocence, we didn't even know how innocent we are, we were, and how that can be encapsulated um, or put upon an ideal, a person or a thing, right? And right. Um, I think, like even people, what it was like before iPhones or, you know, or phones, smartphones. Right. 
And I think that the Sharon Tate idea or obsession is almost like if you can possess or understand, um, it's almost like it's almost like a Harry Potter kind of like getting control of this magic that it's it's like a key to another world of innocence right. because that's yeah. what was it comes to represent was taken and right and i think that's exact yeah. yeah i'm sorry no 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 you yeah wait yeah well i think that is exactly it it's this guy's innocence that he's trying to preserve by right. loving sharon tate who he encountered when he was a boy you know he's become fixated on her as a form of uh, preserving his innocence and, you know, somehow keeping keeping her alive in his heart and in his mind is somehow preserving her innocence, which was so terribly besmirched by her murder, you know. And so, um, yeah, I was, uh, in the deepest way, the book isn't really about Sharon Tate at all. It's about this guy's attempt to preserve innocence for himself and and for his own sense of his, or his, his like world. Go out in the world and grow the fuck up. <laughs> well, that's, but, you know, by the end of the book, I tried to uh, grow him up and out. So, you know, that, that was but the where I wanted that to get he him. goes on is just so wonderful. It's just, well, thank just you, like, Laura. It's like how in Wizard of Oz, how many times do we watch it? It's, it's the journey. Uh, well, we get I have to say, thank you so much, but I have to say, I know we're running out of time. I couldn't have written it without the inspiration, artistic inspiration that I've gotten from reading your books, which are a trip and a half artistic marvels, both of them. And I was a fan of yours before I was a friend. Well, thank you so very it's been much. such a delight it, to been- not only be inspired by you as an artist, even before I met you, but you as an artist. Uh, well, while I've well, known you, you, since I've known you. Well, you as a being and everything you're involved <laughs> with has given me so much permission to keep going and that your great heart, your great appreciation of art in every form and your understanding. Well, thank you. I can sit with you and stories forever. I look forward to you coming to San Francisco and doing a conversation. I'm very excited. The book they put out, our Rare Bird Books, is absolutely beautiful. They did a They're beautiful book. editions. I'm really happy with how beautiful the editing was wonderful uh, from my editor at Rare Bird. The edition itself is gorgeous. Yeah. I've been treated really well there, and uh, I couldn't be happier about it. And happy, too, that I have such a great interviewer, friend, hmm. and fellow writer, writer who inspires me so much in you, Laura Albert. And I must say, we are a mutual admiration society <laughs> gone amok. <laughs> we'll start a club and we'll have yes. a fez. We'll be, our hat will be a combination of the Odd Fellows and Masonic and uh, <laughs> a pinhead. The, right, exactly. So don't, pinhead, don't give pinhead. up hope. I may yet find that pink fez with Barbies on it. I'm still looking. We if you're out there, lady. Better. We got to do something better. Maybe well, we on that note. Matzo brai. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. On that note, uh, this has been wonderful to speak with you, and thank you for all your kind words. And you know. everybody, check out Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon, of Sharon Tate.